Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Scott Hadland. Dr. Hadland is a pediatrician and the Chief of the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital for Children. He joins us to help increase our understanding about what a specialist in adolescent medicine does. This was extremely helpful for me, as well as to help break down the alarming legislation pointed at adolescents, particularly in Florida and in Texas. And finally, how and why he rejects the notion that physicians should not be advocates. This was extremely compelling. I loved speaking with Scott. He is right out there on the sharp edge. He's got a nice long career ahead of him, and we're going to need him. This was really tremendous stuff. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to it. Please do subscribe to Explore the Space podcast wherever you like to download your shows. Please do share this episode and whatever you are enjoying in the archive. We are closing in on 300 episodes. You can also check out the Explore the Space merchandise store, www.explorethespaceshow forward slash merch. And the whole archive of Explore the Space is at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. Email me at mark at explorethespaceshow.com. All of that said, let's get to it. Speaking with Dr. Hadlin was a treat. So here we are, Dr. Scott Hadlin. Scott, welcome to Explore the Space. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This is a good opportunity. I. We were talking a little bit before I pressed record. I like to think of Explore the Space podcast as the place where we can ask questions of experts about things that when we look around, we feel like we're the only person in the room who doesn't know the answer. And so we're a little bit afraid to ask. I'm a board certified physician. I went to medical school. I did a pediatrics rotation in medical school. I don't have a good understanding of what adolescent medicine is acknowledging it has its own board certification. It's a critical part of care of a huge piece of the American population. I don't have a good understanding of what adolescent medicine is. And I'm delighted that you're here because you are a proper international expert in this. Can you help us develop some shared understanding around this? Yeah, you bet. And uh, and I acknowledge we're a, a relatively small field um, with a lot of sort of um, diverse interests that fall in a bunch of different parts of medicine. You can think of us as the subspecialty that cares for the developmental stage of life that kind of runs between, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, all the way out to young adulthood, you know, sort of people in their mid, even late 20s. <laughs> Um, and so my patients in my own clinical practice vary in age between 13 and 29. Um, so adolescent medicine actually falls under the American Board of Pediatrics, 
meaning that what I did to become an adolescent medicine uh, specialist was after medical school, did three years of pediatrics residency, and then three years of adolescent medicine fellowship. You can actually also go into adolescent medicine from internal medicine or from family medicine before that, the idea being that you you sort of need to be a generalist of an age group, either older or younger than adolescents, um, to then go into adolescent medicine. What we do in our clinical practices is, um, first of all, a lot of us are primary care doctors. So I am a dedicated primary care doctor for teens and young adults between the ages of 13 and 29. But then we also have subspecialty expertise, and that expertise often falls into the realm of mental health. We often are medical providers for patients, for example, with eating disorders that have a lot of medical complexity as a result of malnutrition. Um, We do a lot of other mental mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD. Um, Again, sort of in this age group um, of 13 to, you know, 29 year olds for me anyway. And then we also have interesting medical expertise that falls into a number of um, sort of concerns that are often really common in adolescence. And so these would include, for example, menstrual disorders. So young people um, who have heavy periods um, will often come and see us for medical management. Uh, Young people who uh, want tested um, or treated for STIs or for HIV will often come and see us. And so we are this medical specialty that provides primary care in this age group, but then also takes on the subspecialty care of a number of conditions that other doctors might not feel comfortable with, um, particularly when they happen during this key developmental stage. That is fabulous because I'm in a specialty that also requires description sometimes where people say, what is a hospitalist? So it's very helpful for me to get that understanding from you I am struck by that, the the age demographic that you give 13 to 29. So from there, I always like a high level strategic view. How would you describe acknowledging you are on the East Coast of the United States and one of the many large metropolitan medical centers on the East Coast of the United States? What is your perception from that high level strategic view of the the state of the American 13 to 29-year-old? That's not an easy question. It's a very heterogeneous population, but we don't have many people who have that high-level strategic view with access to providers that do adolescent medicine around the United States. What is what is the state of that part of our of our community? Well, let me let me start with the positive framing. I think it is as old as time itself, common for people to say boy, youth these days <laughs> and to, um, to, to, to opine um, about all Our the ways are which, rising up above. Uh, we're sitting on the porch and oh, my God. <laughs> right. To, to, you know, to, to opine about the ways in which um, uh, our, our generation of youth are falling apart. And um, I am here to say that the, the state of our youth is strong, that uh, youth by far and away are healthy. And that includes mentally healthy um, and thriving in many places. Our standard of living for teens and young adults um, is really at its highest, you know, here in the year 2022 than really it's ever been before. You know, the state of our schools um, is strong and our educational system more broadly is strong. Um, I know we don't often um, hear people say that, but we have enormous opportunities for young people. I think social media um, and access to technology has actually provided us enormous new levers to enhance 
um, the health of young people. And I think that people mainly focus on the negatives when they think of these things. I will say, you know, the, the other side of this, of course, is that we're in the wake of the COVID pandemic. And young people have experienced, in some cases, um, medical consequences as a result. Kids have gotten sick. Some kids have developed long COVID or um, some of these other complications of COVID, um, although they're you know, relatively uncommon. Um, and you know, many kids are vaccinated and protected. Um, but the big worry for me as an adolescent doctor uh, is really around mental health, that um, the, the mental health after effects of this pandemic are going to persist long after we get everybody vaccinated and move on from this. Um, and so that that's one of my principal worries about youth across this country. But we also have the tools that we need to take this on. As you were describing the uh, the, the, the state of, of the, the youth, my reflex as you were saying those things was no way. You know, as you're describing the state of American education, the state of all of those things that you listed. It's the power of narrative, right? It's the power of framing. It's the power of of what we are saturated with on social media and on TV and things of that nature. I'll be honest, my reflex was to say, there's no way that what you're saying can be true. And I have to consciously remind myself that there's no one that's going to know more about this than you. Does that friction come up a lot as people ask you about, about the health of American adolescents? Absolutely. I mean, it's just been a long-standing narrative that yeah. um, uh, that there, there's something wrong with youth, um, and uh, often that narrative is one that is um, developed by people who are themselves not youth um, and <laughs> are often like many years, if not decades, older than youth. Um, and so yeah. it's all from uh, often from a singular perspective. One thing that we do in our work is really try to center youth voices so that uh, when we are putting messages out to the public, it, it, it comes from youth themselves. But let me let me give you an example of. Um, something that I think might surprise many of your listeners that I think is like a key data point um, from my own area of clinical work um, that actually is enormously positive. And that is this. Amid a national addiction crisis, we, you know, we are hearing about rising overdose deaths across this country and there's a national emergency. Amid that crisis, there are actually fewer teens using substances today than at any other point in history that we've been recording these data. That more youth than at any other time before are not using any substances whatsoever. And these rates of substance use actually keep declining with each year. And in fact, in many, for many substances actually continue to decline during COVID. So there's a lot of ways in which we actually have positive and reassuring data that we just aren't getting out there. It, let me be clear. We have a lot of challenges still. I've just highlighted this mental health crisis. There are actually enormous um, issues with health equity. Um, we have enormous disparities in many health outcomes by race and ethnicity and by, by um, other sort of measures of identity like LGBTQ youth, for example. But by and large, there's actually a lot of positive messaging here that gets lost amid the negative framing that we often have around youth. So then there's a puzzle for us to put together here. You mentioned the, the power of the messaging around specific things that doesn't necessarily reflect the larger reality. 
that that is oftentimes created by those who are not youths themselves, right? That are older and, and may have a different agenda. And then the issue of the impact of the variety of challenges that we're dealing with in the United States around mental health, there's a confluence there, right? I mean, it feels like a, there's a confluence and I feel like it's in really specific relief now and it comes in waves. This isn't the first time we've seen state, local state and federal policies directed at kids and young adults that would fall in the demographic you describe. Um, we're in it again right now with policies directed at kids of different identities, of kids who are figuring out their identity. And it feels like it's getting ugly. It feels like it's getting scary. How much of that ugliness and getting scary is the messaging that we're inundated with versus the reality on the ground? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, certainly these policies, and we can talk about them. You know, I, as somebody who works with a lot of LGBTQ youth, think a lot about the policies being carried out, you know, most notably right now in Florida and in Texas, but other states are starting to adopt these. And there are alarm bells ringing, and there should be um, for reasons that we can talk about. Um, Let's talk about them. I want to, I do want to talk about them because I think that if someone with the level of expertise and a specialty that we don't I don't understand very well is saying there are alarm bells ringing. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to say, cool, help me understand it and let's move forward so we can make this better. Sure. Well, let's talk about them in turn. There there are two major policies right now that um, the first one began in Florida, the second one began in Texas, and they are increasingly being rolled out to other states across the U.S. And and so this is why many of us are raising alarm bells, not just because youth in those states are going to be harmed, but youth across the United States are going to be harmed as these policies are picked up and taken on by um, other legislatures. So the first policy are these so-called don't say gay policies and opponents of these bills will or proponents rather of these bills will say, well, the bills aren't really don't say gay bills. Uh, But let's unpack what goes into these bills. So in Florida, what has been passed and signed into law by Governor Ron DeSantis is a policy that limits the ability of teachers to talk about um, sexual orientation and gender identity um, throughout childhood. And the law specifically says that you cannot talk about it um, between kindergarten and third grade. And then at older ages, um, you can only talk about it if it's done so in a developmentally appropriate way. Now, I'll say as an aside, there's not a lot of guidance as to who determines what is developmentally appropriate in the state of Florida um, in that law as written. The big concern about this law and these laws, generally speaking, is that they are really vaguely written. So there's not a lot of language in there. There's not a lot of direction in there for school districts, um, for teachers and other educators, for mental health counselors who may be working in the school. Um, And it leaves open. You can just sort of imagine yourself being a professional working in one of these states and, and thinking to yourself, I don't really know what I'm allowed to say anymore. So I'll say nothing because that's safer. Right. Meanwhile, there are zero laws prohibiting messages of intolerance against LGBTQ kids and families. And so my concern and that of many others is that intolerance is going to thrive unopposed without any positive messaging um, for LGBTQ youth and families. If I can if I could go on just a little bit longer, I want to counter a common counter argument um, that comes up. 
proponents of these don't say gay laws will say, well, we're just trying to prevent inappropriate sexual education to young kids. We don't want young kids to learn about sex um, or what it means to be trans until they're old enough to sort of handle that information. That is and I have, a very common rubric that I am seeing on social media with terminology that is far more uh, aggressive, mean-spirited, and downright cruel than what you have much more eloquently and thoughtfully laid out. And I'll just say that. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, you're right. Social media is a tough place to have these conversations wow. right now because, yeah. uh, to be quite frank, uh, some of the ugliest voices that you can imagine are weighing in on this topic. And I I hear this all the time myself. I identify as as a as a gay man and I get called things you uh, you, you just I, I, I'm not going to say them on the podcast, um, but it's the I've ugliest things you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and I follow you on Twitter and I see what you share on Twitter and I see it and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I do want to counter a couple of things that people will say. The first thing that people will say is, as I just mentioned, you know, we're actually just trying to stop people from providing inappropriate sex ad to young kids. Well, I would counter that by saying, um, first of all, nobody here is really arguing in favor of talking to young kids about sexually explicit educational material. That's not what we're asking for here. What we are asking for is the space to provide developmentally appropriate information. And as somebody who is a practicing pediatrician who has cared for hundreds, if not thousands of LGBTQ youth, I can tell you that these issues come up often before the age of you know five when somebody's in kindergarten um, and continue to come up throughout childhood. And so having zero space to talk about these things uh, means that you're not talking about something that actually is is age and developmentally appropriate. There are aspects of gender identity that um, start to manifest in these young age groups. And um, we need to make sure that schools are accepting places for LGBTQ kids. The other thing I would add is that uh, there are strong data, just empirically speaking, if you look at the research, there are data showing that when schools provide an accepting space for youth who identify as LGBTQ, those schools, and just in case like your, your listeners, I've been throwing around the term LGBTQ a lot. In case your listeners are familiar with the term, um, that stands for um, youth who identify as lesbian, bisexual, gay, trans, or queer. So it's an all-encompassing term that just sort of encompasses um, different facets of sexual orientation and gender identity. What we know is that when schools have accepting environments for young people who are LGBTQ, they have lower suicide rates. The, the rates of suicide in this population are sky high. And uh, schools that create affirming environments for LGBTQ youth actually prevent suicide. Um, why and isn't so, that narrative winning? Why, why, why isn't that the priority? Right. Well, I know it's sort of a rhetorical question, right? It's not politically expedient to do that. And it's easy to target. but Come on. Yeah, well, to his credit, um, the current governor of Utah, Governor Cox, was asked to sign into law last week a, a different kind of law that we may not even get to today around uh, trans athletes, um, about around youth who want to compete in the sport, uh, in sports as the gender with which they identify. And he actually refused to sign the law um, because and vetoed it because he said, um, look, the uh, mental health ramifications of a law like this are enormous. And I'm taking those into consideration. And thus, I'm not going to sign this into law. Um, unfortunately, the, the legislature over 
had an override of his veto and and the law has now passed. Um, But it takes enormous bravery, I think, um, and an attention to the science to step up and, and really highlight that these laws have adverse mental health consequences. And if I can just like boil it down into like one bumper sticker statement, it's this, that these laws will kill kids. That's what it takes sometimes is to counter the the bumper sticker statement with another bumper sticker statement. And this brings me to this comes up on on Explore the Space podcast and on our shared social media environment all the time. We're not communicating as effectively, I don't think. We're not I'm not going to qualify. We're not communicating as effectively as those who are promulgating legislation like this. When you're laying out data points around the protection of human life and around outcomes and around mental health being better if we do it one way and worse if we do it another and I have no idea what that article is, what journal it's in. Is it behind a paywall? I would have to then go and do my, you know, do do some digging to find it as opposed to things that are just widely available and sprayed all over social media. That's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Yeah, it's enormous. Um, and I mean, it's 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 a problem that pervades into other areas of health as Absolutely. well, right? I mean, we Absolutely. are in the midst in the midst of an ongoing pandemic yeah. that has been fueled by misinformation um, and and fear. What is the discourse in the office? You have leadership portfolios. You do work in the in the media. You you do a lot of different things. When you're actually in the office with one of your patients who is in that adolescent demographic, what are the conversations that you're having? What is coming up for them when you ask the open ended questions? Well, again, you know, a lot of kids are doing just fine these days. And so um, part of my work is really starting with a strengths based approach and understanding what's going well in kids lives. Right. So um, often kids are thriving in their homes that um, despite everything that's gone on with the pandemic, they have loving and caring families. They have friends and community. They have schools in which they're doing well. You know, I think we focused on the negative sides of these things amid the pandemic, but many kids are, are doing well. In fact, I'd venture to say the majority of kids are doing well, but there is um, a sizable number and growing number of kids um, who are struggling. Um, and so my practice right now is really tuned in to trying to identify problems that kids may not be proactively talking about or that may be in their early stages and are intensifying. So for example, I'm spending a lot of time being really careful and thoughtful to screen for depression, anxiety, substance use, things that we um, suspect may be worsening in some ways amid the pandemic um, and that could worsen in years to come. Spending a lot of time being really careful and thoughtful about identifying those and making sure that people get connected to the help that they need. When you think about the current state now and the the variety of issues that you're talking about in the office, and then we translate that into social media, like we've talked about, we get to start going to conferences again. You're a leader within your your specialty. What is that discourse like when you're in a room with other adolescent medicine specialists? Is the outlook that you're describing, is the the strategic view that you're describing, is there is there some consistency there? Do you feel like there's tension within the ranks of adolescent medicine physicians? Or do you guys have some, is there some clarity on, on what we're seeing and how we're going to move forward? Uh, a bit of both. So it, first of all, to describe my field, um, they're they're like the cool kids in medicine, right? So um, <laughs> if, if you come to our major conferences, um, you will see doctors with tattoos and, uh, you know, purple hair and the trendiest outfits you can imagine. Um, we are we are 
it, you know, of all the of all the subspecialties, we might most look like people that live in the capital in the Hunger Games. Um, if you could sort of imagine <laughs> that as a as a subspecialty. Um, oh my god! And um, a, as a group, our culture is really one of, of just as I had said a moment ago, focusing on the strengths of youth, uh, making sure that we are highlighting the ways in which youth are thriving, building that capital for youth, focusing on youth voices. And that will always be our central and core mission. Having said that, we're all very worried right now about the mental health toll of the pandemic. And again, about in particular, and and it's not an understatement to say that the entire subspecialty is worried, but the entire subspecialty is worried about these laws coming out of Florida and Texas right now as a uh, something that is going to set us back enormously. And I haven't talked about the Texas law and sort of the, the trans health concerns that are coming up, um, but that is uh, an enormous concern for our field as well. Which then brings us to the place of what what do we feel empowered to then do? You know, I, I've shared on the show before, right? The The training that I did in medical school and in residency was excellent at great institutions with great colleagues and faculty and we were not taught and we were in many ways discouraged from the level of engagement around issues like you're describing and that's affected generations of american physicians so we have to from that starting place then understand we still have a role to play and we have to embrace it what is the kind of the tenor within your profession around engagement outside of the office engagement in the media engagement in the in the polling place in the ballot box these sorts of things what does that level of engagement look like well we are all stepping up our advocacy um you know i've actually as somebody who's been involved in in pediatric medical education i was an associate program director for a residency program for three years here in boston uh i watched as um residency programs really across the country in pediatrics, but also in internal medicine and other specialties have really built out their training in advocacy for precisely the reasons that you're talking about. And so um, in our own residency program, our residents were routinely learning things like, how do you write an op-ed for a major newspaper? How do you provide testimony in your state legislature? How do you do a media appearance? How do you work with journalists and reporters? Um, and it's key. One thing I hear all the time on social media is, I mean, it's essentially the equivalent to like, shut up, do your job, be a pediatrician, and then stay out of the, you know, stay out of uh, out of politics. But because in particular, kids under the age of 18 don't have the ability to vote, they have restricted a restricted voice in this country. We have to be the voice for kids and teens. And, and that's very much part of our job and is increasingly being part of our training. And so it's something that I'm seeing a lot among my adolescent medicine colleagues is that they're really stepping up and trying to be a voice. Do you get pushback from other specialties, other fields that are seeing what you're doing in terms of how you're training residents and students in the skill set that you just described? And right, folks can't see us, we can see each other. I mean, my jaw dropped when you just laid out the things that are part of the formal curriculum, because that's, that's exciting. That's, that's critical, right? It should be mandatory. Yeah, I was just going to say most most other specialties, I think, look to pediatrics um, as a as a leader in this space. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, we really have kind of come out in front to be advocates for our patients because of the fact that, you know, they're they're underage and, and don't have the same voice as adults. For the most part, it's been a message of support. There's sometimes people don't like our message and they'll push back against 
um, not just the message, but the idea that we would be messengers. And um, I just I just reject the idea that physicians should not be advocates. I reject the idea that physicians should not be advocates as well. So <laughs> we're we're there's two of us. There's actually it's, a, it's an important point though. There are growing numbers of physicians who understand that when it comes to societal moments that impact the public health, it is part of our job to speak about it. It's not optional. It is part of the work. The skill set associated with that obligation is one where we have some catching up to do. How do Absolutely. we then how do we then make the levers and make the toolbox that you're giving, right? The the residents that are in your programs, how do we get that to scale? How do we and I have asked a lot of people this and I love the answers. How do we get that to scale so that we don't let a lot more time go by without being able to look out and say, okay, now we really have an armada of healthcare professionals who are trained up, motivated, and ready to go and speak and act and engage around issues pertaining to the public health. Yeah, I mean, we're. I think we're very much getting there. Um, so, you know, I've talked about some of the the um, upstream approaches that we're taking, right? Making sure that residents get this education upfront and early. You're seeing, you know, um, including in our residency, but also in other residencies across the country, special tracks that are dedicated to um, enhancement of advocacy skills. But we have a lot of catch up to do of um, physicians like me and you and others who may have come through at a time when this was less emphasized. And, and you're starting to see um, national conferences um, take up and uh, these topics and make sure that they're providing education, including continuing medical education for credit um, to providers to be able to, to increase these skills. And that's happening not just in, in medicine, but um, uh, in particular in nursing and social work and clinical psychology, in nutrition, um, in, in lots of different um, aspects of, of, of healthcare. And I think one thing that's been a huge boost for us, and I think you and I have both been beneficiaries of this, um, is involvement in social media. It's sort of a, um, a low-hanging fruit, right? You can... It doesn't take much to start your, you know, to, to, to start your online presence. It takes a lot of work to foster it and build it over time, but it does sort of allow a new entry point for physicians to get their voice out there, build a following, um, uh, get messages that are important out to the public, and then be able to communicate with policymakers and the media um, in a way that was never accessible before. I think that, you know, it used to be the the gray-haired doctors in ivory towers that were um, always the ones that um, had access to these opportunities, but social media provides a direct new outlet. So then for you, acknowledging the swirl that we've all been in and the myriad directions that we've all been pulled in, you're, you, you have been able to rise in leadership swiftly and effectively. What feels like the right next steps for you as you look at we're in an election year. There'll be a presidential election in two years, but also just the right next meaningful steps for for Scott as we go forward. What feels aspirational for you? Well, for me, I, I am focused right now on getting our clinical operations optimized. I want to make sure that every kid under our care um, who comes to see us um, and might have a mental health problem is being identified, has another medical problem is being addressed. Um, so I'm really into optimizing our own clinical care, making sure that we're being mindful as a practice about health disparities by race, ethnicity, language, and a number of other identifying factors. And then to take our 
frontline experience as healthcare providers during this unique time that we're living in and bring those stories to the public to advocate for change. And I want to be really clear that based on a number of the things that you may have heard from me, um, you might sort of have some ideas about my political identity. What is always first and foremost for me is making sure that policies are focused on the right decisions for kids. And so, for example, that policy that I mentioned earlier on that the governor of Utah um, refused to sign last week, that, that Governor Cox of Utah is a is a Republican um, governor and not necessarily um, from the political party that you would anticipate that somebody like me who advocates for LGBTQ youth would often find himself partnering with. And yet he very clearly made the correct evidence based decision and um, I, I applaud him for that and actually have applauded him for that on social media. And uh, so I, I think our partners are everywhere. We just need to help people identify what the data are and how they apply to, to policies for youth. And I'll, I'll continue doing that for the rest of my career. But it's a real focus right now. Policy is driven by many things. Politics is one of them. And I think that's the important distinction that we always have to remember. And it's a place where we may not agree on nine out of 10 policies with various people. But when it comes down to this one, we might agree, and that should be an accelerant. But when we trip ourselves up and say that politics and policy are the same thing, they can cause some confusion. And and I think it's really valuable that you're able to help remind us of that with that distinction. It's We can jump to conclusions very quickly, and then that becomes a barrier that we have then imposed on ourselves, as opposed to saying, this is the policy that we want to create. What are the levers we can use to drive it? Politics being one of them. And that you're able to help remind us of that is much appreciated for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the the thing that um, that gets me is that we're spending so much time right now on the defensive. So rather than developing policies that promote youth well-being um, and take a strengths-based approach, we are constantly putting out fires that are being lit <laughs> in all corners of this country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And right now, those fires are being lit around LGBTQ youth. And so, you know, I I will be here to fight for what's right and defend the health of young people. But boy, it would sure be nice to focus on the positive instead of trying to take on these negative policies and defend. Proactivity beats reactivity every day of the week, man. Yeah. And and tempo is, is essential. So I agree with you that idea formation around effective policies and then promulgating those ideas first and loudest we have opportunities to do that a lot better we do. around things that we believe are important and we hopefully we'll do it. Yeah, we do. I think the challenge is always going to be that we need to make sure that we're not just sharing data, but telling stories um, that people need to hear about our patients and the real life things that they live and experience. So, you know, we as, we as healthcare providers are often focused on the studies and the data, and those are important because they, they drive what we should do they drive the policies, they help us understand the public health, but we need the stories because that's what's going to convince people. And we also have to, I think, be aware um, that we're often baited into arguments uh, with folks. And I think Florida and Texas are examples here. Now, we have to wade into this debate because we have to do right by our patients and and defend against laws that are harmful. Um, but we also have to be aware that um, some of this is baiting and quite frankly, like beneath us. On those points, we're out. We, I've got nothing else. That that is that is the ultimate summary, and that is appreciated. How do we find you? How do we follow you? How do we 
learn more from the work that you're doing and the strategic view that you have around adolescent medicine? Well, I'm on all the social media platforms um, as Dr. Scott Hadlin, all together, one word. And uh, increasingly, I've got some other material I'm putting out on the web. And and um, and if you're you're really wanting to get into the weeds, you can read my research studies, <laughs> which are also out there. I love it. We're going to have some links in the show notes to some of the good stuff that you've put out there and certainly to your social media handles. Scott, this was a treat. Thank you very much for making the time. I know you get pulled in a lot of different directions, but that you can make some time and space for us here was is is really wonderful. And, and this was awesome. So thank you. Gosh, no, it was an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My thanks once again to Scott for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. Definitely check out the show notes. There are links to a couple of key articles that he referenced in our conversation as well as his social media handles, and I definitely recommend following him on Twitter. He does great work on that platform. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks to you so much for listening. Always delighted to have you here. We'll be back soon with more great content. Definitely follow me on Twitter at ETS Show. Check out the archive of Explore the Space podcast, and please do spread the word about the show. To all your friends and colleagues, you can find us www.explorethespaceshow.com. We will be back soon with more great content. Thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.